Hi everyone. Uh, we will start uh, in a few minutes. So um, in the meantime, if you want to check out the paper or oh, the Google Drive, sorry, I have to <clears throat> manage access. Okay, it should work now. Let me do it again. Okay, now it should be now it should be working. Our guest speaker will be arriving any minute, I guess in around two minutes or so. So uh, yeah, in the meantime, please check out the the paper and the presentation and uh, yeah looking forward to having this discussion and if you want to leave comments in the chat or come to the stage uh, feel free to raise your hand and uh, yeah will be fun happy friday everyone Yeah, also, if you think that this is like a worthwhile discussion, feel free to share the room. Uh, and yeah, we'll be starting soon.
Yeah, hey everyone that just arrived. Um, we will talk. Our guest speaker will be arriving any minute. And if you want to check out the paper um, ahead of time again, um, it's open source. It's in the chat, the link. And um, yeah, check out the presentation. It should, everyone should be able to access it. And um, yeah, looking forward to the discussion with everyone. Feel free to raise your hand, come to the stage, participate. It's always more fun if uh, people chime in with questions. So feel free to do so. Thank you. Hi Murat, how are you? Welcome, welcome. We'll start around two to three minutes, so you still have a little bit of time to relax. And uh, happy Friday. I think I forgot earlier <laughs> to say happy Friday. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. How are okay. you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we still have one or two minutes. I hope you you're having a good Friday, not stressful. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It is going nice. I hope it's the same on your end too. Yeah, yeah. It's all good this Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and um the weather is surprisingly good still this September here in New York, so that's also nice. So. Oh, yeah. Same in Boston. I mean, we, we often have very similar weathers with New York anyways, I guess, but it is it is surprisingly pleasant today, indeed. Yeah. Um, I don't know if in general it's a good sign, but personally, right now, locally, <laughs> it's a good sign. Oh, from my Fair mind. enough. Fair <laughs> <Yes>. enough. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, and also, welcome everyone. Please check out in the chat. There's the link to the paper. 
and um, yeah, you can find the link to present to the presentation on top. Uh, so um, if you're interested in in learning some more, um, yeah, please check out the paper again, and also um, we can. Um, you know, feel free to direct message me with more information and so on. So great. I think we can, we can start. So, uh, welcome everyone to science society to today's room. And uh, of course, a special welcome to you Murat and, um, uh, thank you so much for coming and, um, you know, going through the trouble to make a, you know, an account and everything to come here. It's really an honor. So we really appreciate it. Oh, and, I mean, thank you very much for inviting me. This is, this has been a pleasure and I hope I can give an interesting enough presentation to everyone and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it will be for sure. Uh, really interesting. And, um, yeah, so before we start, let me uh, give the audience a little bit of an introduction so they get to know you a little bit. And um, and then we usually ask a couple of, uh, you know, small interview questions to get like some conversation going. And then it's time for your presentation. Um, and yeah, we'll go from there. So um, Dr. Uh, Murat Onan, he um, he did his um, bachelor at the Middle East Technical University. It's just a coincidence, but we had earlier this week also a researcher that uh, went to the did his bachelor at the same university. Interesting, <laughs> uh, it's about material science, uh, uh, food engineering, uh, using uh, different laser types to. Um, combat uh, like uh, germ resistant microbes in food so <laughs> well, <Wow>. anyhow <laughs> so <laughs> i should introduce the two of you <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah then uh, dr um Onan, he did his um, masters of science at the massachusetts institute of uh, technology in electrical engineering and computer science and um he also did his a PhD there in electrical and electronics engineering. And um, he's now a postdoc um, at MIT and um, did a lot of really interesting work. He also at some, uh, he did also some research at, um, as an intern at IBM, the Watson Research Center. Uh, that's, that sounds like uh, it was also for sure very interesting research. And it's a pinchy that Serena is not here because Serena also did research there at some point. So, but uh, she will listen to the replay for sure. Maybe she'll make it a little bit later. And um, before we start, um, we usually ask if you, if you uh, could let us know if, like, was it always something you wanted to do to kind of do research, become scientist, engineer, or was it something that maybe some teacher, some book or some experience triggered that interest in, in, in you know, pursuing a career in, in the field? That's, that's an interesting question. I mean, it has two parts 
to it, I guess. I mean, A, which is the more common answer, I guess, is yes, I mean, science has always been a part of uh, what I like doing and I'm also what I happen to be good at. So at least that was a, a good uh, synergy, you know, what you want to do and what you're good at. Them aligning is, is an advantage to have in this, uh, in this life. And so I always liked science, even, even from a very young age. I was actually very interested in biology uh, to start with. Uh, particularly different herbs and uh, you know what they, how they interacted with people, what are the chemicals inside them. Uh, as I you know continued in the school uh, around middle school and high school, I got obsessed with chemistry. Uh, I was actually in the chemistry Olympiads, and uh, what was was yeah like at, at those times I was quite certain that I would do I would have a career in chemistry, but then. The reality of life, uh, at least in Turkey, uh, where I, I was born and lived for over 20 years, I guess, uh, was chemistry was not the best career option at the time. Uh, so that is how I ended up in engineering instead, because we had, I don't know how it is in different countries, but at least in Turkey, we have this general uh, exam uh, and then you get a score and get a ranking and according to that you get into your university and uh, electrical engineering was uh, the top at least uh, you know electrical engineering medicine and law were the top three I would say and I didn't want to become a lawyer and I didn't really want to become a doctor uh, not a medical doctor at least so I picked engineering uh, that's how I that's how I started how I continued research from then on as few parts to it uh, in undergrad, I was already doing some research. Uh, as you said, I went to IBM uh, once, which was a fantastic experience. And even in the, uh, bachelor, during the bachelor's degree, there was a researcher, young researcher program that I got into. Uh, so I liked, I, I, I realized that I liked doing, you know, uh, research from that point of view. But also, I can't, I can't skip without saying that there was a, a more political component into it as well, as in I wanted to uh get into the world uh get out of turkey uh, a little bit due to some of the conditions that i was not a particular fan of so you know a re as a researcher you do have more opportunities i would say than any an employee uh fresh out of bachelor's so uh, applying grad school was a nice way of uh, getting into a new country and starting a new experience from start so that's why i where I became certain that I wanted to do research. I already liked doing it, so it was not just for the sake of leaving anywhere, but uh, that definitely was a contributor to the fact that I wanted to uh, go to Europe or go to the United States, uh, and indeed I ended up in the United States, where I'm quite happy now. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, I yeah, even if I didn't become a researcher, I guess I would still be doing science related things i guess or maybe math but uh because i that those were the things that i always found most enjoyable uh but yeah in, at least in the in the in the decision that made me uh, join uh, a phd program uh there was more than just uh idealism i i must admit it was not just uh, pursuing an ideal which certainly had a portion but not all of it uh, and uh, now that I've finished my PhD, I, I'm, I'm, I'm liking it more, uh, to be fair. Uh, and 
these days I'm also interested in a bit more maybe the entrepreneurial side of science. How do you commercialize the scientific output? And I would love to talk about that if that is of interest. And yeah, that's that's where I am now. I'm currently continuing as a postdoc and uh, looking for what's going to come next. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's the ideal world situation where you can combine like your passion with also what's good for you, right? And with like things you want to do and try out. So I, I think that sounds like you did perfect choices and congratulations to have the <laughs> life you wanted to have. That's, that's already a, a huge achievement. So uh, that's wonderful. And um, the second question would be, how did you choose the specific field and research and, and also this project? Like, was it hard? Like, did something like special happen that this project came about? Or was it really easy and pretty straightforward? Was it hard or easy to get grants for it? Like, did people believe you could do it? Like, you know, um, like, I know it's probably two questions merged in one, but I think it's always really interesting to peek behind the curtains a little bit of um, how, how projects come about. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. So uh, how I initially entered into this field was in actually in this internship that you mentioned earlier. It was in 2016, I believe. Uh, and uh, that was not entirely by choice. I was doing something in the field. What I was doing in my bachelor's, I was conducting some research based on how can we mimic uh, some of the dynamics that exist in uh, uh, neurons and uh, its support system in order to get uh, some you know, phenomena out of there and apply them to AI. But I must admit that it was a very premature effort. I mean, I was a bachelor uh, student anyway, so uh, it was not really an advanced research per se. But that led me to get into this uh, internship uh, where they were starting to work on these analog architectures. That was a bit of a chance, I would say. And uh, they, they were doing that. They asked if I would be interested in doing that. And uh, to be completely honest with you, whatever they uh, could uh, suggest me, I would have jumped on it anyways, uh, because I was a, you know undergrad uh, student in Turkey, and this was a big opportunity in IBM Research at New York. So I, I, irrespective of the project they would uh, propose, I would have probably accepted it. But they happened to accept uh, uh, propose this one. And I started from the uh, algorithm side of this. And actually, at part of this talk, I will mention them too. Uh, and their algorithms for these new type of processes. And that's how I got into the field. After that, I did my master's in uh, actually in superconductivity, an entirely different field. Uh, and uh, the reason I got into superconductivity was uh, I was thinking, uh, Maybe I got just lucky and uh, got in because when I got admitted into MIT, I was definitely thinking, oh, do I really deserve to be here? You know, what did I really do uh, enough to get in? I didn't know. So I wanted to get into a field where basically you don't know anything about uh, such that I'm thinking, I was thinking if I can survive this, that would at least prove uh, that I am worthy of something. Uh, and uh, lucky enough, uh, when I, I clearly admitted this to the professor who I was going to work with, he was okay with that. So, and I indeed survived. And it, actually, my master's was, you know, quite successful. Actually, uh, even though I'm not working in the field of superconductivity anymore, uh, 
I did quite decent for, for a year and a half type of project. I, it was quite fruitful. And, and right around those times, the, this project came up in, with another professor at MIT. And since I knew uh, what was the problems in the device realm of the same processes, so, you know, whenever you come up with a new processor, there are multiple parts to it, right? There are the building blocks, there is the system, and then there is the software. So I started from software, but I was aware of the issues in the devices, so all the way down. And this project was aiming to change that. Uh, they got this project, they had a proof of concept with uh, a material that was not that good. I'm going to mention that in the talk as well. And they were intending to basically come up with this new new device family that would enable the realization of these processes. And that got me interested in, and at the time I was also willing to take a new challenge. Uh, as I said, I liked superconductors a lot, uh, but I think throughout my career, I always tried to sample as many things as possible uh, because I like new things. I like new challenges a lot. So that's how I ended up in this project. Uh, and it is, I, I joined it three years ago. Uh, and uh, it went a long way uh, during the last three years. And uh, now I'm also uh, seeing, okay, which next steps that I should be taking, uh, you know, to advance this one any further or maybe something completely different. I don't, I don't really think so, so far, but like, um, uh, to, to push this into a new realm such that, you know, it is new to me. Uh, I can learn, I can continue learning new things about it. Uh, and yeah, so the project's funding was done by someone else, essentially. They got the project, they needed a person uh, to do it, and uh, I was available at the time. And since I had the experience coming from at least another side of this field, uh, they thought, oh, you know, this is going to be a good fit instead of starting with a person, uh, you know, at the origin, this person at least knows something about it, not necessarily new devices, but something about it. So that's how I, it ended up being, uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> hope that quick contrary story kind of explain, gives an answer, but uh, I think it was a very nonlinear process, uh, <laughs> to, to say the least. Yeah, that's, um, but we have this, you have this amazing results and uh, publication and work. Um, so in the end, all is perfect. So <laughs> congratulations again. Thank you. And, and, uh, it's, it's also, it keeps life interesting, right? If things are not straight <laughs> forward yeah. and, um, so, um, yeah, so the stage is yours for everyone. The presentation has been on top of the room. And um, yeah, we uh, are all curious to hear your talk. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Well, uh, I mean, first of all, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Muratanen again. And um, today I will be presenting you analog deep learning in general. So when I was thinking to, to what to presenting this talk, I, I decided that, okay, if I just do devices, it's going to be too technical, maybe too dense, uh, or if I do the algorithm side, again, maybe that way. So I try to uh, design the talk such that the first, maybe even maybe first half of it is quite high level introducing the field, um, assuming no prior knowledge in analog deep learning and why it is, why it exists. Uh, so my goal today actually uh, will be to uh, show by the end of this talk why we urgently need better AI hardware, uh, how can analog deliver that, and what are the necessary steps we need to take. Uh, and as I said, I will go 
to a relatively lengthy introduction to, you know, do justice to the introduction of the field and then follow it up uh, from the examples from my own research, which of some will include the results of the latest paper. Uh, and then I will also show some results regarding the algorithms work that I do. And I'm more than happy to uh, stay for Q&A to, you know, if there are any particular questions, maybe in-depth technical questions or rather general questions, I'd be happy to start. So uh, I will start with the slides uh, starting from two, and I will try to uh, remind everyone which slide I am anytime I move. Uh, I hope I won't <laughs> mess it up. But uh, anyway, so I first want to start with what makes deep learning so special, why we are so interested about it. So when you have uh, abundant labeled data, which we do have today, and uh, when you build complex uh, connectionist systems, such as the one that you can see in the background of slide two, at least an illustration of it, you can then uh, train these systems to extract some properties of the data set, some underlying properties of data set, and then form abstract relations between them. So what do I mean by this? To, to exemplify, we can have a look at this uh, network GPT-3, the state-of-the-art natural language processing network we have. Uh, and for those who are not familiar with GPT-3, you can think of it as a massively advanced Alexa or Siri, uh, in the sense that it uh, inputs uh, questions in text form. Uh, so you prompt a query in a text form, and it also provides the answer in the text form. That is why they are often called as natural language processes. So when you ask GPT-3, why is bread so fluffy? It then returns the answer describing the details of the leavening process. And what makes this interesting compared to, say, finding the same answer in a search engine is that this network, GPT-3, actually has never seen this information in this explicit form. What it's doing instead is it's building a representation to associating many low-level futures, futures that it learned during its training over a quite large set of examples. To put that into context, uh, the entirety of Wikipedia was used to train GPT-3. And uh, even that huge data set only comprised 3% actually of the complete data set it was trained on. So moving on to slide three, you will see that it, it's not going to surprise you that it was not an easy task, right? So to, to train this network start to end took 10 to 23 floating point operations, which is, which is a very high number. And I want to note here that this number even excludes all the experimentations went into this in order to you know, decide on the network structure, uh, decide on the hyperparameter optimization, and so on. So this is the only last actual training uh, that was done. And if you were to do this on a single high-end GPU, it would, cost, it would take 355 years you know, to, to converge. So obviously that's not what researchers did, right? Uh, instead, what they did was to um, harness enough compute power uh, at the data centers uh, in order to complete this task in the matter of few weeks. And uh, while that worked, obviously, it also came with a hefty cost of $15 million. What we do know with almost certainty is uh, that these numbers are going to go up. 
By 2025, uh, estimations suggest that training the state-of-the-art neural network is going to cost more than $1 billion. And not only that, it's also going to consume higher power than the entire New York City, which is quite mind-blowing if you think about it. And what this means is, uh, as we move on to advanced AI applications, such as uh, autonomous systems, uh, intelligent decision aids, or natural language processes, fewer and fewer people will be able to train these networks simply because they just won't be able to afford it, right? And uh, as a result of that, uh, AI will monopolize uh, more and more. And ultimately, whoever has the best hardware is going to take it all. Which is why in slide four, you will see uh, a lot of different AI hardware has been proposed to address this issue. So this graph uh, shows many different architectures uh, presented with respect to their peak power in watts and peak performance in giga operations per second. If you move uh, towards up and right uh, in this uh, graph, you will what, what you are essentially doing is you are giving more and more power uh, to your processor, uh, or you are maybe using multiple processes in parallel in order to have a higher peak performance. That's why you start seeing uh, data center level systems. And instead, when you look more closely towards the origin, uh, you start seeing edge processes or mobile processes sometimes, uh, uh, where the total amount of resources you have or you can allocate are limited. So you are trying to keep a low power budget while giving as high of a performance as possible. So in order to be able to compare these systems at very different deployment ends, right, uh, all the way from mobile to data centers, people often use a normalized metric uh, such that they are comparable, which is uh, operations per seconds per watts. And uh, you can see those dashed lines crossing across the graph, uh, which are showing this, these, these values. And what we started seeing in the last few years is that digital CMOS-based architectures, which are basically the conventional architectures that we use for or our computers, our mobile applications, and so on, they started to get limited by this 10 teraops per watt uh, line. And uh, this is a problem, uh, considering that, if you, if I, as I said earlier, if you want to move on to advanced AI applications, these kind of metrics are not enough, not going to be enough. Uh, to get them in a reasonable amount of time, reasonable amount of energy, and reasonable amount of budget. And uh, if you, on top of this, if you think about the diminishing returns we started getting from transistor scaling, uh, the situation actually becomes quite dire, right? And that is exactly why analog processes started of becoming interest. So the point of the the, the promise is is more than a petaops per watt type of uh, metric. And uh, therefore, they are extremely interesting to the engineering community on how to how to make them real. So, but let's take a step back uh, to understand how this graph emerged, right? Uh, so in order to do that, let's have a look at what are the operations that we are trying to execute, why digital architectures are having a hard time doing them and what is special about analog ones that are that make them more suitable for this application so on slide five um, 
we have, what we can see is bulk of deep learning actually comprises two key tasks, testing the inputs and uh, updating the weights. So whenever you uh, present uh, an image, for example, of a cat to an image classification network and ask uh, what this image belongs to, uh, what you end up doing is a series of matrix inner products between the input image you have and the successive layers of the neural network. And when the network returns you the answer, saying that the image belongs to that of a tree, then you need to update the weights. And to do that, you end up doing a series of matrix outer products uh, such that the error is minimized. And the next answer will hopefully be more accurate. And these matrix inner, inner and outer products, or matrix algebra in general, uh, is particularly tricky uh, to compute over digital architectures. And to understand that, we need to investigate what happens uh, in slide six. So first of all, whenever you want to do either one of these operations in a router product, what you have to do is you need to bring the input matrix and the weight matrix from the memory and uh, transfer that to the processor. And once the processing is uh, done, you then need to write them back to the memory. So at the large scales of matrices that we are dealing today, dealing with today, uh, these, this type of communication quickly exhausts the memory bandwidths we have, causing this uh, infamous problem called the von Neumann bottleneck. But it doesn't end there. When the matrices are finally in the processor, it's still a very high computational complexity operation, specifically O and Q. So what do I mean by that is, if you want to do the same operation with a matrix that is 10 times larger, you will actually end up doing 1,000 times as many operations. And obviously, if you have a serial processor, you need to wait 1,000 times longer as well. And there is obviously another way uh, to do it. I mean, instead of using a serial processor, such as a CPU, we can use a parallel architecture, such as a GPU. And the idea there is we divide the same task into many parallel cores, such that the operation is done, uh, again, with, with parallelism, right? But the problem there is each GPU core, these, this unit element that we repeat uh, to get parallel processing, is actually comprising of few hundred transistors. And given how many of them we need uh, to parallelize, these architectures end up becoming highly area and energy intensive. And that is exactly where the analog processes come in, uh, if you move on to slide seven. So when we talk about analog hardware, it is actually very important to do spend some time on uh, disambiguation, because in the last decade or so, particularly in the last few years, there's so many mentions of analog hardware, which we now need to uh, spend some time to say which one, right? On the left, uh, we can see the actual predecessors of the computers that we use today. I mean, they, they were analog at the end of the day. Before we had digital computers, we had analog computers. 
And uh, these machines uh, were essentially signal processes. They processed continuous variables such as light or electrical uh, voltages and so on, or sometimes even mechanical versions. And what they did was to imitate complex systems. Uh, for example, the image that you are seeing on the left is, it belongs to a pharmacokinetics uh, simulator. So what it does is it simulates the motion of a, a drug inside human body. And uh, the uh, interesting part about that is like for at the time this machine was being used, if you were, were to try to do this on a digital uh, processor of the day, uh, they existed, they were in the early days, it would have taken you forever to, you know, define the partial differential equations you need, then doing uh, numerical simulation methods uh, in order to converge to a result. It would simply be impossible uh, at the time. But instead, when you did the same with uh, analog components, where basically the dynamics of a drug moving inside human body were matched by the dynamics of the electrical circuit that you built, you could then simply energize the circuit and uh, look at the particular parameters that you are interested in and then infer decisions what they would mean for uh, the motion of the drug. And on top of that, I lo wrote long past with a question mark because while it's obvious that they were in the past, uh, they are actually having a comeback in the recent years. But nonetheless, those are not the architectures that I will spend time on talking about today. So on the right side of the slide, you will see neuromorphic processes. And I'm quite sure many of you have heard this uh, word extensively. And at the core, what these architectures are aiming to do is that they want to imitate neuroscience uh, through mimicking the spiking nature of the synapses and uh, how Hebbian learning takes place through the timing dependencies between those spikes. So, and on top, I chose to write far future, again, with a question mark next to it, because on one hand, I think it makes perfect sense to look at human brain or mammalian brains in general and see an incredibly powerful processing unit uh, as the brain. It's very compact, uses low power, can achieve very complex tasks. So it makes very good sense to try to mimic that. But it turns out uh, if you only mimic what happens at the low level with these spikes and timing dependence and so on, simply doesn't give us enough functionality uh, today. So whenever we want to get uh, any intelligence-like future, uh, such as classification, for example, mimicking these neuronal dynamics, at least the ones that we understand today, are not enough. So one day, they might, as we understand human brain more and more, uh, these architectures will probably become a reality. But today, I think they are quite immature. So that is why I'm going to talk about intrinsic processes, which I'm showing in the middle instead in today's talks, which you might have seen or heard in the terms of resistive crossbar arrays. And what these architectures essentially are is uh, they are efficient linear algebra machines. Uh, so if you move on to slide eight uh, to very briefly explain what they are doing, on the top you will find this sentence, local and fully parallel information processing using physical properties instead of Boolean arithmetic. And First of all, let's divide this uh, into some pieces. 
these machines are local or also called as in-memory compute type in the sense that the physical place where the weight matrix is stored is also the exact same place where the bulk of the operations are processed. So as a result, whenever you need to do uh, a matrix in your router product, you don't need to bring the weight matrix from memory and write it into uh, the processor as it already is in the processor. You still need to bring the input way, in, input uh, matrix and write back the activations. Uh, so you still do need some communication, but nonetheless, this approach drastically reduces the amount of uh, memory bandwidth you require and partially resolves the von Neumann bottleneck that I mentioned for digital ones. Second, these are fully parallel architectures and they can process uh, matrix inner and outer products with ON computational complexity instead of ON cubed that I mentioned for digital. So then now if you scale something by 10, it's gonna, the time it takes is going to only scale up with 10 instead of 1000, which is great. And the most interesting part of these uh, architectures is instead of getting this parallelism through many complex circuitries comprising hundreds of transistors each, they only do that by a single, simple and single resistive device element. So what you're basically doing is you're trading uh, out a few hundred transistors to be replaced by this one resistive element. And the reason that they can do this is instead of trying to do these matrix operations with uh, Boolean arithmetics or binary logic, so representing things with ones and zeros and uh, employing logic gates with registers and so on to force this construction to process your multiplication or addition, they do these operations through intrinsic device behavior. For example, they do multiplication through Ohm's law, they do accumulation through Kirchhoff's current law, and possibly more interesting than both of them, they can also do rank one updates, uh, which I'm going to explain what they are in a, in a minute, to certain device physics and probability or statistics. So as a result, what happens with these kind of devices is they will be much more energy efficient because instead of paying a lot of overhead uh, to complex systems uh, such that you can get some functionality, you are now using some devices that naturally lend themselves to the application that you want to do. So that is the key idea and that is why uh, at least I call them intrinsic processes because again they intrinsically are uh, working in the way that you want them to so on slide nine what you will see is uh, the core the heart of the analog processor which is a crossbar array of uh, resistive elements so in this in this case the, what you are going to do is that you are going to represent the weight matrix of a neural network layer with the conductance values of these cross-point elements. And then when you represent the input vector as the row voltages, the resultant column currents will be simply the inner product between the row voltages and the conductance matrix. Really relatively simple idea. And the nice thing about this is if you double the scale size of this uh, conductance matrix, still going to take the same amount of time right uh, to for the currents to result uh, with respect to the application of the voltages 
so in other words, the vector matrix multiplication that we are doing here is a constant time, O1. And the matrix matrix multiplication, therefore, is linear time, ON. And this is nice, but uh, on its own, it's just simply not enough. Because in order to capture a deep learning application or training application, one also needs to be able to program all of these conductances in parallel. So just being able to read them in parallel uh, doesn't is not enough. We want to program them in parallel. And in slide 10, you can see immediately that the, the how this happens is significantly more complicated than the very simple uh, physics that go in slide 10, uh, 9. But in 10, what, what I'm showing is the, what is the method that allows us to implicitly calculate and also apply all of these updates in a fully parallel manner. And it relies on two key things. One, probability or statistics, and two, device behavior. So probability side of the things is relatively easy to achieve because the it is essentially governed by the peripheral circuitry. What we want to do with the probability is to, you, you see those pulse strains uh, at the rows and uh, columns. We just want to be able to uh, assign the probability uh, proportional to the value we want to have. Sorry, that was a bit confusing. I'll take a step back. Uh, what we want to do is to generate those pulse trains where the probability of having a high value is proportional to the, the value you want to use for the rank one update. Might be a bit too technical here, but that's what we want to do. And that's relatively easy to do uh, because it's just some circuitry. We have that, no problem. Instead, the integrity of this operation, as you might already imagine, heavily relies on this device behavior. So if we have these devices acting in a certain way, the update will be accurate and nice, such that we can train uh, these conductance matrix uh, representing a neural network. But if they don't, then the update you are doing essentially has nothing to do with a neural network training. So then, of course, that's, that's a big problem. So let's look at slide 11 now to see what are those uh, device properties that we want to have. So we want to have a device with a conductance value. And uh, when we apply a positive voltage uh, pulse to this device, we want this conductance value to increase by just an incremental amount. And then when we do another voltage pulse, increases a little bit more, another one a bit more, so on and so forth. And then when you invert the polarity of the voltage pulse to a negative one, we want the device conductance to decrease, again, by a tiny amount. Another negative voltage pulse decreases further, so on and so forth. So, and if you don't apply any pulses to this device, we want the conductance value to stay exactly where it was uh, when it was programmed to last time. So that's why we, these devices are often called as non-volatile programmable devices or non-volatile programmable resistors. And you can see the shape that we are looking for on the left side of the slide for an ideal device, where we want a gradual change, preferably linear change. It doesn't have to be linear, but we want it to be preferably linear. That helps. And definitely symmetric. So by symmetry, the way we define it at least is when you do an increment and a decrement, it should go back to the same place where it started. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I'm going to explain in the latter half of this talk why that matters so much. Uh, but for the time being, let's just take it as, a, as probably the most important property of these devices. We also want them to have a large conductance range. So we want to you know, have a range of, say, 10x uh, between the minimum and maximum conductances. And we want to cover that range through many incremental changes. So we don't want to just apply a pulse and boom, it's on the from lowest to highest. No, we want it to be gradual and nice. So if you look at what is the uh, most advanced devices, at least for this uh, application, we see phase change memory uh, type devices, these PCM uh, devices that rely on uh, reversible phase transitions in calcogenite classes. So but if you look at the modulation graph that I'm showing just beneath it is, okay, the increment side, at least the smooth side, gradually rises. It's not linear, but as I said, it's okay. But then when you want to decrease the conductance, it's instant, it's abrupt, it's utterly asymmetric, right? And this extreme level of asymmetry basically rendered these devices completely unsuitable uh, for analog deep learning applications. A competing technology to PCM is filamentary RM, which is the one that you are seeing next to it. And while these devices are all also asymmetric, I mean, at least they are significantly better than PCM. So that's that's the start. But the biggest problem, I would say, is that these devices have very low yield. So when you make different when you make hopefully same devices, they end up being very diff different. So they have a high device to device variability. And uh, that is actually something inherent to these devices because those conducting paths that form in those filaments, uh, that, which is the conducting path inside this insulating matrix, they form in random locations. So you can't control really it during fabrication or post-fabrication while using where these, these are going to be formed. So in the end, devices end up being quite unreliable. In contrast to these filamentary devices, magnetic and ferroelectric devices are very reliable. They have very low uh, device device reliability, high yield, uh, so far so good. But the problem is achieving more than a few states, even more than two states uh, with these devices is very challenging because the physics that are feeding these devices happen extremely fast fast to a fault. So controlling it, taming it such that we can tune it gradually is very, very, very challenging. And actually, if you stop here for a second and look at all the three technologies that I showed here so far, and all the ones, and so many ones that I didn't, uh, and that assumes that at least you know the field, these are all devices developed for memory applications. Right, these are devices that were designed for storing information. But instead, now what we want to do is actually process information. We don't want to store information; we want to process it. So, learning, uh, by definition, is to tune the variables to the optimal value via many, 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 many incremental modifications. Right, so. We don't want to store it, we want to process it, and therefore we need to optimize the devices for state transition properties rather than just state preservation properties. And that is exactly where the 
non-filamentary ionic devices, which are shown on the rightmost side, uh, come into picture. And an easy way to uh, understand what these devices do uh, at a high level is, imagine you have a semiconductor uh, that you can control the dopants that exists in the semiconductor through electrical pulse. So normally uh, with transistors, we dope the semiconductor in the foundry, package it, send it out, and then it is what it is. You can move those dopants inside or you know, electrons, actually not the dopants, move it, electrons that come from inside by using electrical voltages. But now what we want to have, or, and what we do have with these non-filamentary ionic devices is you have the semiconductor material and you can control the amount of dopants that exist in it post-fabrication during the operation of it uh, by applying electrical pulses. So in slide 12, uh, on the left, you can see at least a magnified version of the uh, same picture that shows that these devices comprise three key layers. A reservoir that uh, contains essentially an infinite number of ions uh, ready to be released upon the application of an electrical pulse. An electrolyte that uh, conducts these ions, again, when there is this uh, electrical potential, while strictly insulating any electronic leakage through it. And finally, an active layer, which is our semiconductor in this case. Uh, in most cases, it's a transition metal oxide, uh, which has a controllable conductivity uh, depending on how many dopants are inserted or taken out uh, from this material. So actually, if you use lithium as these dopants or these ions, what you end up having is pretty much identical to a solid state battery, right? And thanks to the very advanced uh, battery uh, literature we had uh, and many lithionic devices that lithionic materials we know, there have been so many successful uh, applications using lithium. But the key problem is lithium is a CMOS incompatible material. Uh, what that means is you cannot build these devices in silicon fabrication. So the idea normally would be to have a front-end uh, technology comprising conventional CMOS, uh, and then on the back-end, you would build these devices such that the chip is complete. But if you use lithium, you cannot integrate these devices to the front-end silicon because, again, uh, none of the foundries would uh, allow you to introduce lithium to their processes. It's a very, very tough to work with com contaminant. So that's why people started looking into oxygen-based devices, right? At least there have been there are so many oxide uh, materials that are CMOS compatible, uh, so that checks that box. But the problem with oxygen is it's a large ion and it's also heavy. So whenever you try to move it around, uh, A, it's not going to be fast, B, it's not going to be energy efficient, and C, uh, if you do this back and forth, back and forth so many times, given oxygen is large, uh, host lattices will actually be mechanically degraded because you are trying to insert and extract something quite big and after many cycles, materials start degrading. So that's why finally the focus shifted into hydrogen-based devices or protonic devices, because we are talking about ions, so it's just a proton. And it's a good idea because hydrogen is smallest ion, 
uh, so proton sorry, is the high, smallest ion and it's lightest ion. But the absence of any protonic solid state material critically limited uh, the applicability of these devices uh, by means of intubation and scaling. Uh, you couldn't basically use conventional methods to build these devices. So early demonstrations actually used some liquid electrolytes or polymeric electrolytes, uh, neither of which are particularly compatible with uh, silicon fabrication. So you can't use either one of them to you know, make small devices, again, using CMOS uh, silicon nanofabrication techniques. So a key innovation we had in our lab over the last three years was to come up with a CMOS compatible solid state protonic electrolyte, which is phosphosilicate glass. So this phosphosilicate glass or PSG for short is essentially silicon dioxide. And this is pretty interesting because people have been looking into materials that with exotic ceramic materials uh, that comprise elements that at least I haven't heard of before, uh, and I'm sure you know the in the depths of periodic table there's so many elements. It turns out, uh, and you know there are a lot of exotic uh, choices. And don't get me wrong, some of them work excellent uh, in in many applications. But <laughs> what what we we chose to use was silicon dioxide essentially, by far the most well-known oxide, I guess, uh, to uh, humankind, and. Uh, what we just did was to dope it with some phosphorus at a very particular level. The good thing about it is PSG already exists in silicon fab, so it's certainly a compatible material, and it's a very well-known material, so most properties were studied, so we could tweak it in the way that we wanted to. The good thing about this material is that it has a high proton conductivity at room temperature, and uh, it does it without relying on environmental humidity, uh, which is important because some ceramics actually work through absorbing water from environment, but not PSG. PSG has some intrinsic properties that allows it to conduct protons, at least the PSG that we use. And it's also a good electronic insulator, which is again important, uh, such that you have an electrolyte. And it also has a high breakdown field, which is a very confusing thing for many. I mean, even if you are with, within the field or uh, outside the field, because breakdown field is definitely not a parameter that is cited when you're trying to build an electrolyte. Uh, but in order to understand why, why I'm mentioning that here, why on earth it matters at all, we need to actually understand how protons move in solids. Right. Uh, as electrical engineers, we know our electrons move uh, quite well, but how protons move is very different uh, with respect to how electrons move. So protons actually move in solids through a series of hopping motions. And each hopping event has an energy barrier, similar to the one that's shown in blue uh, in the curve that's on the bottom side of slide 12. So Imagine that you are, this proton is at the bottom of that energy uh, landscape, and in order to move, it needs to overcome this energy barrier, such that it can hop into the next one, and then do it again to hop into the next one. And these energy barriers are high, even for the PSG, which has a relatively low energy barrier. Uh, these are high, for example, in PSG's case, it's 0.4 EV. 
which is much higher than the uh, thermal excitation that you will have at room temperature, which is 26 millieV kT. So traditionally, it's not going to surprise any one of you to hear that ionic devices were not fast. Uh, the state of the art when I started this project uh, with these ionic devices was a millisecond range. And milliseconds is definitely not the time scale that you want to be related to it when you want to do compute applications, right? We are, our whole our processes are in gigahertz and above. So we're definitely talking about much faster than milliseconds. We don't want milliseconds too slow. So in order to change this though, if you start applying an electric field uh, onto this device, you start tilting the energy landscape. And as you increase and increase and increase the electric field that you apply, you can tilt the landscape to the point at which that you don't have a barrier anymore, right? So that is what you're seeing with the purple curve uh, that is on top of the blue one, again, in slide 12, uh, that there is a point at which the barrier ceases to exist in the direction of motion that you want to push the proton. So in, in other words, in technical terms, this is now granting you ballistic motion uh, for proton transport in solids. And indeed, uh, most materials, uh, it, whenever you try to apply this, this level of electric fields, uh, which, you know, 10 megavolts per centimeter in electrical engineering uh, units or one volt per nanometer in material science units, uh, which I never understood why they chose to use different ones, but it is the way it is. Uh, whenever you do that, uh, most materials will just simply turn into ash. It's as simple as that. So the materials that you use uh, would degrade uh, beyond use anymore, and then uh, they would be dead. But instead, the PSG can withstand these electrical uh, pulses, uh, very high electrical field pulses. And to demonstrate that, in slide 13, you see the devices that we made uh, at the nanoscale. So these devices uh, were at 30 nanometer node. Uh, we fabricated, I mean, I fabricated them uh, at uh, the clean rooms of, of MIT. Uh, and uh, when we tested these devices, we saw state-of-the-art combined properties for any device technology that was presented for analog deep learning applications. So first of all, these devices are fast, very, very fast. So to, to put that into context, we were able to program these devices using only five nanosecond pulses, whereas the, as I said before, the previous state of the art was in milliseconds. So these are a million times faster than the previous state of the art, which, which is highly rewarding because it doesn't happen all that often. So to, to improve uh, the previous state of the art by a factor of a million. And not only that, each pulse, each five nanosecond pulse, only contains 2.5 femtojoules of energy, which is extremely long. And uh, also note here that almost all of this energy, this 2.5 femtojoule, is actually the capacitive loss that goes to uh, during charging and discharging of these devices. The actual energy that is associated with moving the protons inside this device is only 15 attojoules, which is an amazingly small number. And from the middle graph uh, in slide 13, you can see that this modulation curve that we are seeing here is 
pretty much the same as what I showed for an ideal device, right? It is nearly linear, it's highly symmetric, uh, the conductance range is quite large, it's 20x, and we are covering this range uh, using 1000 pulses. And in slide 14, to, follow, to continue on those, we have good retention, uh, so good non-volatility, and we also have very good endurance. Uh, so you can see that in million pulses, the device at least didn't go through any change. And uh, some might ask, why did I stop at million? Uh, because uh, I also wanted to see how the retention works. So one million pulses, essentially, although the pulse itself is only five nanoseconds, so a million of them doesn't take any time at all, I also need to read them for some time to see if the change was indeed non-volatile. So then it becomes actually one second each, and one million seconds is already long, and I wanted to graduate at some point. So uh, that's why we stopped at a million. But even then, uh, afterwards, we continued pulsing these devices. So far, we haven't seen a degradation even at much higher numbers. But a proper, a full, full-on study needs to be done, obviously, for endurance in detail. And on the right side of slide 14, you can see that uh, in real time this time, uh, what happens immediately after when the pulse is there. Because it is possible that you apply the pulse and the change actually happens over a certain duration of time. What, ha what is happening instead here, as you can see, uh, particularly on the inset of the right, we send the pulse and the change is pretty much instant. Oh, in technical terms, it's sub-microseconds. That's what we can claim, uh, because that was the limitations of our measurement setup. But at least it is, it is very, very fast, and it's not happening to a slow and elongated equilibration, which is, which is pretty good. So slide 15 is actually a, a, a bit of a plug more than anything, but uh, it has been a really a great pleasure of mine to share that over the last month and a half, by, the, by now, uh, since the results became public, we received quite a bit of press interest, uh, which is which is quite nice. And uh, we are now moving forward with uh, the devices into the higher, uh, higher levels, such as arrays, and then uh, to system level studies. And while this slide is going to conclude the device part of this talk, as I was mentioning a second ago, the job, the complete job is actually far from done, right? Because these are unit devices, then you need to array them, then you need to build the, the peripheral circuitry and uh, ultimately run algorithms on top to actually go to the deep learning applications because that's what we are after at the end of the day. Uh, and obviously you need unit devices, but it's not enough. So today I'm not going to talk too much about architectures. Um, I can if there is interest in, uh, in the Q&A maybe. But I'm going to focus on the algorithms, uh, algorithm side. So if you go on slide 16, the idea here is at the end of the day, we want to train a neural network, right? So what we have to ensure is that the changes we exert on these resistive devices, they need to correspond to accurately training a neural network. Because if they don't, then what's the point? So, and for this task, many people assumed that, oh, okay, you know, we have training algorithms that we designed for digital applications, most famously stochastic gradient descent. Uh, I think it was originally designed in somewhere in 80, not, uh, 1800s by Cauchy. I might be wrong, uh, but that's what I recall. Uh, and there is a French original paper. 
and since it helped so much to us uh, or, or pretty much all of deep learning uh, many variants of stochastic gradients and people thought okay you know why not why not use it here too uh, uh, it has served us so well they're probably going to work here too but the thing is analog architectures have some non-idealities at this device and circuit level that simply doesn't exist for digital architectures and therefore we now need to update the algorithms such that they can become tolerant to those non-idealities and the way to test these uh, the effects of these non-idealities on uh, actually training a neural network we rely on simulations so what we do is uh, we pick a network say convolutional neural network uh, uh, recursive neural network fully connected doesn't matter we pick one and we simulate uh, we model first of all we model the device and the circuit and the non-idealities associated with them and ultimately we simulate the training to see what is the resulting accuracy and if there was any degradation so that's what we do to show an example let's move on to slide 17 and on the left what you are seeing is the training of an lstm type neural network uh, using stochastic gradient descent our beloved algorithm on three different models of devices of increasing asymmetry uh, from blue to green and for those who are not familiar with LSTM, what it's trying to do uh, is, uh, first of all, it's trained on the War and Peace novel of Tolstoy. Uh, that's the data set it uses. And what it's trying to do is to guess the next character in the string. So you can imagine it as an autocomplete of sorts, although how they work are completely different. But it, that is what it is trying to do. The, the, it is not an image classification network, but it is text processing or hopefully, I mean, evolved versions of this uh, does language processing ultimately so what you're seeing here and also uh, by the way just one last note in the graph y-axis is cross entropy uh, which means the error so the higher up a value is that means the network is performing worse the lower it is you have less error uh, and it's a logarithmic scale so actually a little bit of even even a little bit of a change in y-axis means actually quite a bit of uh, change Okay, so now when we look at this uh, graph, what we see is with respect to the black curve baseline for a perfectly symmetric device, these ideal devices that I mentioned a while ago, all of these asymmetric devices cause a very heavy loss of accuracy, right? And even for the blue curve, which looks pretty symmetric to the naked eye, I would say, uh, but it does have some little amount of asymmetry, even that has a significant loss of accuracy. So this is a problem, obviously. And given that most devices that exist in the field are most re mostly resembling the green one and maybe sometimes the red ones, people knew this problem. People have seen this in their own simulations uh, and even in some mini demonstrations some people did. It was actually the possibly the most well-known problem of analog processes for a long while. And therefore, there have been some solutions, right? Some mitigation techniques proposed by the community uh, to say, okay, how do we get around this? How do we uh, beat uh, the problem of asymmetry? Unfortunately, most of these uh, proposals lie on one of, one of the two main categories and some rare occasions for even both of them. So first group says, why don't we use a feedback loop around each update? So we do an update. And if it is asymmetric, we can compensate for it. 
we just check it, check, check if the update was the one that we wanted to, and then if it's not, let's correct for it. And from the description I just gave here, you can see that this is a serial operation. So because you, you need to basically check every single update, uh, see if it is right. And it's actually a repeated serial operation because you need to compensate for it, maybe a few times even, because you do the compensation, maybe compensation is not enough, so you read it again and compensate enough, so on and so forth. And as a result of that, it sacrifices the very parallelism that lies in the core of these architectures, right? That was the point of them. So if you choose to do that, maybe you will fix asymmetry, but you will actually have an AI decelerator, uh, which is definitely not something that we need at all, right? So uh, sacrificing parallelism is definitely not the way to go. An alternative idea uh, we could do, uh, people proposed, uh, okay, let's build a circuit around each device such that the circuit is, uh, which is called a compliance circuit, by the way, the circuit forces the device to act in a way uh, that we want to. Uh, and, okay, you know, again, this might solve the asymmetry, but this goes back to the problem that I mentioned for GPUs, right? The hundreds of transistors per core. Well, now we're going back to that. We have a device, now we have many transistors around it that are forcing it to do something that uh, just the way that we want to, hopefully. And in the end, uh, this application, this this method, uh, if you use that, the you completely sacrifice the area and energy efficiency that are associated with these uh, architectures. So again, beats the purpose. And possibly the most interesting thing actually uh, about this problem is, even though this was the most well-known problem uh, in uh, analog deep learning, no one actually knew why, why that was a problem. So for example, noise, we knew noise existed. We knew noise was a problem to a certain extent, but then we understood why noise was a problem. Uh, it, it made sense. Asymmetry, we, everyone knew it was a problem, but no one really knew why. What, was, what were the theoretical underpinnings of this problem? Why was it happening? Why can't we get rid of it, right? And to explain how it works, uh, I'm going to show you slide 18, which, uh, which is basically the simplest uh, learning example that you can have, a single parameter regression. So what we're gonna do is that you are seeing the graph on the very left. And that is our data set. And what we will try to do is to find the mean, the average of the data set. It's not going to get any simpler than this, right? This is the simplest learning example you can have, single parameter regression. And as you can see from this data set, uh, it has some standard deviation, uh, which is this red band. And it has an average value, uh, which we are going to call G0. Uh, and the naming convention will become more apparent as I move towards this slide. And uh, Again, as I said, we will try. We will try to do is we will try to find the average of this data set. That's our task. So on the top row in the middle, uh, we will try stochastic gradient descent, our beloved algorithm, uh, to train uh, on tr to train the ideal device that is just next to it uh, in this application. And nothing interesting will happen, right? <laughs> we will start at a random initial point. Uh, I'm talking about the top right uh, plot now. Uh, SGD using the ideal device. We'll start on an arbitrary point, and as training uh, continues, we will converge to this average value, G0. Nothing interesting, really. It's what it's supposed to happen, and it, it, it happens as it's supposed to. So 
The only thing in here to note is uh, the inset uh, in the uh, top, top right graph that even when we see convergence happening, uh, what is actually happening is uh, the, the value doesn't stay there in a static fashion, but instead it moves in the vicinity of the optimum value. So, which makes sense because, you know, some of the values will be above the mean, some of the values will be below the mean, right? And if it is above, it's going to go a little bit up to take that into account and vice versa if it is lower. On average, everything will cancel each other out, which is basically the definition of the mean, and uh, it will stay there. And that's exactly what's happening. And therefore, this G0 value is not a static uh, point, but instead it's a dynamic equilibrium uh, from the data sets or algorithms point of view. So now if you look at what happens for an asymmetric device, uh, and the, on the bottom, on the bottom uh, just beneath the ideal devices graph, you can see the modulation characteristics for an asymmetric device. And uh, as I said, the way to understand these devices is you do an increment and you do a decrement and they just don't cancel one another, right? But in particular, if you are above this orange line in the middle, you do an increment, which is saturating, so it's tiny, and then you do a decrement, which is sharp, you will have a net negative, right? And if you are below this orange line, the opposite will happen. So actually, whenever you do an update and whenever you change the conductance, you pick up a term that shows the direction towards this orange line in the middle. And what's special about this orange line is it is the only point where the incremental change is equal in magnitude to a decremental change, which is why we often call this G symmetry, the, sy the conductance value that the device is symmetric, the only conductance value actually where the device is symmetric. And if you think about it, this is the value where the conductance wants to remain at, right? This, whenever you change, it wants to go to there. So that's why we can actually call this point as the dynamic equilibrium of the devices, uh, from devices perspective. And as a result, if you try to now train these asymmetric devices with stochastic gradient descent, what you will have is instead of converging to the optimum value uh, in the green line, you will convert somewhere in between the optimum value and the uh, symmetry point. And uh, as a result, it will essentially fail because that's not what we want to have, right? And uh, to, to even think of a total experiment, even if you were to start from this optimum value, say that you were super lucky, you guessed the answer from the beginning, what you will end up is you will still go and converge to this point because we know from the top right, when you're at the convergence, when you're at the optimum value, you get pulses that are randomly up, not randomly, but half of them are up, half of them are down on average zero. But we do know from the uh, study that we just carried out for the this asymmetric device that drives you to the symmetry point, right? So even if you start from the green line, as training continues, you're actually going to go back to this converged uh, point uh, that is in between the G0 and G symmetry. So it is a pretty fundamental problem, right? Even because if you can't even stay at the answer, how are you going to find the answer, right? So it's a, it's a big problem. So in slide 19, I, I try to put this in a more formal uh, setting, relatively speaking. So on the left, uh, if, if you continue understanding what stochastic gradient descent is doing, is it has an error function, right? And it tries to minimize this error function. That's what all optimi optimization problems uh, uh, try to do at the end of the day. And the 
we can imagine this the error function or the energy associated with it as a potential energy, right? That's what we are trying to minimize the potential energy. And when we do it, we will be happy because that will be the uh, answer that fits our data, whether it's a single parameter regression or whether it's a massively advanced neural network. That's the key idea philosophically. But what we are seeing actually in an analog architecture, whenever you change the conductance, so whenever you move, you actually pick up another energy. You pick up another force related to that energy as well. And since it is associated with change or movement, it is more like a kinetic energy, right? And what stochastic gradient descent is doing is it tries to optimize the potential energy, but actually samples the total energy. So it ends up converging to the wrong optimum. It still converges. It's not divergence, right? You saw in slide 18 before, it did converge to a point, but it is just not the point that we want it to. That's not a point that we care about. So if, you, if it was a neural network, that would mean that it's a network with a high error because that's not doing what we want it to do. It's doing something else, something completely else. So in order to fix that, what we ended up having to do was to come up with a new algorithm. It is basically a modified version of stochastic gradient descent. And the key idea is to separate these competing equilibria into two subsystems, where one subsystem, the auxiliary one, can uh, minimize the kinetic energy such that the, uh, the main subsystem, the core subsystem, uh, will be able to accurately minimize the potential energy. So since we are now trying to minimize both energies together uh, in a, and incorporate that into the algorithm, we name this algorithm as stochastic Hamiltonian descent to refer that it is doing the total energy, right? It's minimizing the total energy. And as a result of that, it goes to the, it converges to the right optimum. So I am not going to show you the pseudocodes or the steps that takes this algorithm because that's definitely not uh, so that doesn't sound like a good talk to start with. And it's extremely complicated to follow the steps of an algorithm, particularly when you're seeing it for the first time, even if you live and breathe algorithms. So, but instead in slide 20, what I'm going to show is the result. So on the right now, uh, the, the right plot, uh, you can see the same LSTM example trained for the same device models for stochastic Hamiltonian descent. And immediately you can see that the uh, loss of accuracy is now mitigated, right? Which is great news. Even for the highly asymmetric green device, the uh, accuracy penalty that we are paying is uh, almost gone. But what is most exciting uh, actually in this uh, in the slide, and to be fair, uh, in, a, in a slide that I give live, this comes in animation, so it's you know even more uh, apparent. When you try to train devices that I showed in the earlier half, the protonic devices that are behaving so nicely and already quite symmetric, it ends up beating stochastic gradient descent with perfectly symmetric devices. So these devices that don't exist, these hypothetical ideal devices with the most conventional algorithm, they actually lose to the devices that are new here, the protonic devices in combination with this new algorithm. And this is extremely exciting because analog hardware has always been proposed for uh, speed and power reasons, right? It was faster and it was more energy efficient, but never more accurate. Actually, that was their problem. People would 
withstand the inaccurate nature of analog processes just for the sake of getting the power and any, uh, uh, speed benefits. But now what we are showing here is that if you actually design the algorithm cognizant of the features of the devices, you can beat the conventional algorithm. So it actually opens up possibilities. In other words, what we are doing is we are transforming this bug of this analog device, asymmetry, even at, at low level asymmetry at least, into a future that uh, it uses such that it can converge faster and possibly provide better generalization performance, which is an incredibly important metric for neural networks. And finally, I also want to note that there are more applications to analog processes beyond deep learning, primary of which is um, the generalized machine learning uh, and more specifically randomized numerical algorithms such as quasi-Newton, or uh, eigenvector decomposition, matrix sketching, streaming, so on and so forth, wherever you want to do heavy loads of linear algebra, particularly if those are rank one updates, these architectures can provide quite a lot of benefits. And in slide 21, uh, the, I, I want to show you know, the main question that we, we, are, we are left with, how do we innovate faster? And again, as there are no animations, you already see the uh, spoiler down beneath it, but what we need to do is we need to let go of this linear progression that I have used as the banner on the top, right? The, the idea of, oh, okay, someone will make devices, then those will they give it to the architecture for, and architecture people will build the system, and then they give it to the software people, and then the software people will run out. just doesn't work. This doesn't work because we don't know when we bring devices into systems level or systems into algorithms, what is going to happen? We don't know how they will interact. So actually, this works for silicon, by the way, for CMOS, for digital. It works because we have extensive experience in uh, building silicon CMOS systems. It hasn't always been this case, but now we know uh, after so many years, so many decades, now we know. But when you prematurely try to compartmentalize this field into devices, architectures, algorithms, it doesn't work. We need to do co-optimization. We need to rethink this entire concept as a whole and we need to optimize it together. So that is what you see in slide 22. We actually need to adopt a cyclical fashion in order to uh, get to these devices. So you need to build optimal devices, obviously. You need to build efficient architectures of them and you need to make analog-specific algorithms. And the cycle basically means that Whoever makes the devices will have an idea at algorithm level what will happen, and also whoever is building the, the writing the algorithms will know what features of devices they need to live with and what features they can exploit. And when it is in a co-optimization form, these are, these processes can become a reality pretty soon. And don't get me wrong, this is not an easy job that I'm describing here, right? So this is going to take all the disciplines from applied mathematics to applied physics and all the engineering disciplines you can think of that lies in between the two. But given that the potential benefits we are trying to get are so high, the urgency is very much there, uh, if you remember from the introduction part, and the progress itself is very promising. It's probably the most, one of the most easy, uh, one of the easiest uh, fields to justify to be working with. And uh, Finally, I mean, it has been a real pleasure of mine to give this talk uh, today. Uh, thanks a lot to Katerina to, uh, for reaching out. 
uh, and uh, I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions uh, and uh, happy to yeah uh, get into details uh, and so on uh, as you wish. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Murat. This was an amazing talk and so fascinating and so impressive. So congratulations again. And it's so genius how you increase the speed um, by such a high number um, that you um, and that you don't lose basically um you know you you don't damage and it's at room temperature so it's all the important uh problems that you know not all but <clears throat> most important problems we we had you managed to solve so elegantly so uh congratulations again and and um i have a question that is a little bit related to a room we had um last week also on friday uh, i don't know if you know mike levine or <clears throat> levin was here from tuft and what he does is um develop these uh, xenobots that kind of can self-replicate and um also solve problems um and self-assemble and stuff like that and he he also then works with uh, cognition and tries to solve the problem of you know that kind of uh, behavior is performed out of many units and that these many units at some point develop an individuality like mm -hmm. of processing so i know it, it's probably totally far-fetched what you said you conserve basically that there's parallel processing. So what do you think is each parallel processing basically? Does it represent these units like in organisms? And do you think that your material can achieve this higher cognition and like, you know, integrity of processing? that it can develop like an AGI or a general uh, cognition that would be more generalized because, you know, a few factors are theorized to be a higher speed and a high connectivity and that you have different parallel units basically uh, represented in a system. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a very good question. And uh, I hope, I mean, I will, I will give an answer and if I if it turns out I understood it wrong, please correct, and I would be happy to you know re-understand it, try to re-understand it. But I think in whatever application that you are looking for, whether you are making you know self-assembled systems or self-healing systems or computing systems or anything, any engineering challenge that you can look for, I think the key idea is that are you working with the fundamental physics or fundamental dynamics or fundamental mathematics? Uh, can whichever makes the most sense do they work for what you are trying to achieve so let's 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 try to you know break this down into a few steps so what we have today right with digital architectures is uh, these binary systems and uh, the reason we like them is uh, <clears throat> it is it is easy to do binary logic uh, it has some advantages and therefore uh, some key algorithms such as sorting and whatnot the binary 
works fantastically. These ones and zeros work fantastically. So what did we do is was to optimize transistors. And transistors, the physics that are behind them, uh, particularly you know, CMOS or MOSFETs, is that they can be on and off and they can be switched back and forth fast in a nice manner. So on and off and mapping that to one and zero, basically the physics of the transistor, the, the, under, the, the intrinsic physics of a transistor lends them very nicely to binary operations. Now then we can make a similar analogy in quantum, right? Quantum computers are meant to process everything uh, in a way that classical computers doesn't. So what they do in some sense is it's, I'm not going to use the word parallel because that would be wrong, but they would, they process things in a superposed way. And the way, the reason they can do that is the underlying physics of how qubits interact with one another is essentially allowing them to entanglement and superposition that these quantum computers can achieve what they do. Theoretically speaking, classical computers can do what quantum computers can do too, and vice versa. It just would take maybe infinite time, infinite money, infinite power. Then even if it's not infinite, it is very, very large, right? So the, the key idea we are seeing uh, even with these two systems is, is the physics that you have uh, the right one for the application you want to do? For when we bring this analogy now towards the realm of deep learning, we do know what operation we want to do. We want to do a lot of matrix algebra, right? And it turns out that it's, there are some devices that, again, physically speaking, uh, they lend themselves uh, to matrix algebra in a nice way. And whenever you have that kind of alignment, that is where you get the most uh, efficiency. So one way uh, of looking at that is uh, you can always, I think, build overcomplicated systems with a, a building block that doesn't really naturally belong to that. But this overhead that you are going to pay is going to make you either slower or, or more power hungry. So that is, I think, the key philosophy behind these uh, analog architectures. And in actually, you know, I'm quite sure in many disciplines, whenever some people come up with much higher efficiencies um, or much faster uh, devices, that is what it almost always is. If you have the materials, if you have the physics, if you have, or if you have the mathematics, or if you have the system inter interactions that are naturally doing what, what, so what they want to do is the same as what you want them to do. Whenever that is the case, you get, you get the benefits. I think that is what probably, uh, what you must have heard in the uh, Professor Levin's talk, although I wasn't familiar with what they were doing. I just checked them out and I am seeing, I think they probably would agree that this is at least partially applying to them as well, but that is the key. You know, you need to, you need to very deep, you need to have a very deep understanding of what is it that you want to do. And then you need to search for what would do it naturally instead of forcing what exists into what you just want to do. We will probably get it doing right. Like, I mean, GPUs do, a relatively decent job in deep learning. But ultimately, if you want to do more and more and more complex operations of the same type, you need to abandon them and then find a, find a domain that these operations can be handled intrinsically and more efficiently. Yeah, thank you uh, for entering that. And um, please um, raise your hand if you have questions. 
uh, Joyce, Dennis, um, Abyss, if you have a question, please flash your microphone or just go ahead. Go ahead, Abyss. Thanks, Dennis. Um, oh, hi, Kat. Hi, Joyce. Um, thanks, Morat. I was present for the most part of the presentation. It's really, really impressive work, and I'm really fascinated as to like how um, analog um, computation is actually willing to propel the deep learning, or at least like the machine learning, deep learning um, um, architecture that that's been widely adapted by the digital. So that being said, I do have um, a couple of questions for you. The first one is, um, what are the specific thermodynamic conditions that these um, analog devices need to be uh, placed in? Of course, like you mentioned that your or your system that you developed actually works at room temperature, but you also mentioned some materials like silicon dioxide, which um, typically is used like a piezoelectric material that actually um, responds with um, some kind of pressure or like, you know, like I said, thermodynamic conditions. So I'm just wondering how you can reliably um, implement these kind of devices given uh, the variation of, or at least like the thermodynamic variation that they're placed in. So I'll start with that one. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, I mean, it's a good question. The Silicon dioxide can indeed be piezoelectric. The one that we have doesn't satisfy the conditions for it to be piezoelectric, at least, you know. I know that's not what you specifically asked. I think that was more of an example of possible uh, issues with it. But so the, the material that we are depositing, uh, we use uh, plasma enhanced uh, chemical vapor deposition. And uh, the technique and the getting the same material again and again is relatively well established, I would say. So since it is a very familiar material to silicon processing, there is an extensive literature of uh, getting whichever PSG is that you want to get to uh, in a reliable manner. Uh, so from that point, from the fabrication point of view, uh, getting it the same time, same every time is, again, relatively straightforward. It is not any, any different than what we are commonly doing for silicon processing for all the transistors we have, right? So. There obviously will be some variability, but it is well beneath the uh, levels that we can tolerate. The second part of it is uh, how does it, uh, what thermodynamic futures it, it needs? And also, I guess, a part of the question could be, does the, ter the thermal changes affect the operation of the device, right? So the, the devices that we have built uh, are working in room temperature. Theoretically speaking, uh, they can work at lower temperatures as well, because as I, as I was mentioning with the, what the field is doing, it removes the barrier. So you don't really need KT anymore. You don't care about it. And actually lowering the temperature, uh, if you can afford the cooling power, which is a question mark of its own, but it would lower the noise. Uh, so it can actually be beneficial uh, to lower the noise. Uh, then you would probably uh, spend uh, either less time in the ADCs to integrate, uh, sorry, in the op-amps to integrate, or you can use uh, lower power uh, analog digital interfaces. So it can actually come with some advantages. As the temperatures go high, um, the, the, we don't anticipate any change. We have at least tried uh, these devices up to uh, 50, 60, 70 Celsius, uh, and the devices seemed operational, but a detailed study of, oh, is it the exact same? 
hasn't been done yet. And uh, whenever you build a processor, of course, the temperature increases are an important property. Whenever you decide transistors also, you want it to, to operate the same within a temperature window. But one good thing, at least about these devices, given that how energy efficient they are, uh, at local temperature increases, not that expected. I mean, it's going to be far better than uh, silicon. So you can cram in many more devices before uh, heating the chip uh, uh, by any any meaningful temperature. For example, it, it, the estimated how much uh, the chip would heat when it was, uh, we assume the chip, first of all, we don't we have unit devices, but just to walk you through the estimations we had, uh, we assume a chip, we assume this chip is utilized fully. So it is, uh, you know, used at the highest power that it can take. And we anticipate it's only going to increase by two Celsius. And the change of two Celsius is almost impossible to affect anything, I would say, uh, like uh, 20 to 22 Celsius or, you know, 30 to 32, it doesn't really matter. But uh, so we, we are not really that con uh, con uh, concerned about the uh, thermodynamic changes. I mean, at the end of the day, these devices will be encapsulated once uh, or and packaged uh, for a chip form, and maybe if need be, uh, they might be coming with their own cooling uh, apparatus uh, itself, similar to you know many like a fan, for example, that you have in a computer. But uh, yeah, I would say that we are not strictly relying on certain thermodynamics or certain pressure, uh, like environmental or physical changes, to work. But instead, we only rely on electrical changes. So that helps with the reliability significantly, as well as using a material that is quite dull. Right. Thanks for that. My question was also trying to address the different packaging considerations that you have to make, um, given that how certain thermodynamic conditions can affect the computation. But yeah, you answered it um, really nicely. Um, my second question is, how versatile are these um, analog devices, uh, versatility in a sense that how can they address sort of like the, this um, ever-evolving um, algorithms or deep learning algorithms that have been devised um, in recent years that seem to kind of overwhelm the existing ones. And if you heard about tra transformer models, diffusion models, these are now coming becoming like a trendy thing. So I'm just wondering how... Um, hardware is able to kind of address or sort of like utilize these this these methods um to essentially um sort of expedite the you know the precision making process i mean i mean uh, the the prediction making process right mm -hmm. that's a, that's an excellent question actually you know because the uh, the reason i say that and i i i i'm not saying it as a cliche I, it's it's actually really a perfect question there are so many applications uh, that we want to address. And uh, there are also some chips that can only address a subsection of them. So whenever you talk about, you know, uh, commercialization, for example, of this technology to become real and hit the industry and actually remedy the problems of uh, AI hardware, uh, absence of AI hardware, you have to have a general purpose uh, chip. You just have to. Uh, there are some, for example, applications, some implementations such as uh, spiking neural networks, they can do some things but not many things. And uh, that all, that subset is not enough to justify sometimes to, you know, uh, justify the development costs necessary for to bring those devices or mini systems to you know, full scale systems. So these architectures that I showed you about uh, uh, today, the intrinsic processes, these resistive crossbar arrays, 
you can train uh, at least so far the, from the ones that I know any type of neural network. For example, we have tried uh, on simulations uh, fully connected neural networks all the way to actually restrict the Boltzmann issues. To be fair, not that they are extremely relevant, but uh, convolutional neural networks, LSTM type networks. Uh, uh, there are uh, recursive convolutional neural networks as well, the combination of the two. We started looking at it more recently. Uh, and uh, the, uh, for example, the fusion models that you, uh, you, you said earlier, they should be all possible. There are only very few things that they can't do. Uh, for example, if the algorithm that you have relies on a momentum method, uh, uh, it, it's not going to happen. The reason for that is the parallel updating of these devices uh, actually is interesting in the sense that when you do the outer product, the user doesn't actually get to learn what is the outer product that is applied. So you send these vectors, you translate into them into pulses, and then these pulses are fed into the crossbar. And the update just happens without user knowing what update was done. So if you really want to know, you need to read it before and after, which is you don't you don't need to uh, for you know a non-momentum uh, type algorithm, but if you insist on knowing what update uh, is done, you actually need to do a read before and after. Uh, again, something not not what we are really looking for. And the, again, the reason for that is uh, you are actually up updating the uh, network implicitly. Uh, the update matrix is you know uh, hidden from the knowledge of the user. So. The only thing that I know that they cannot do is uh, momentum-based algorithms and some adaptations of that, right? Like there are so many approaches that are adjacent to momentum that relies on knowing the previous updates or recent history of the updates. And I mean, if you really insist, you can do it as again, but then you will start sacrificing from the performance. That's why I mean that you can't do them. It is not really a fundamental inability, but it is a practical inability. But other than that, uh, all, all types of neural networks, you should be able to map them into these. Uh, if, for example, the matrix size is larger than your array size, you can uh, patch multiple arrays or other way around. If, you're, if you have small convolutional kernels that you want to map onto a single array, you can divide the array into multiple pieces. Uh, we have demonstrated some of those uh, early on. So these are pretty flexible uh, and uh, one, one last thing to basically tie this up is uh, another question would be, for example, how do you do the activation and error functions, right? Do you, do you want to do them in analog or do you want to actually do them in digital? And people ask this to me quite often, why, why do you go between analog to digital uh, this frequently? Why can't you just get rid of the digital altogether? You can build an analog nonlinear function processor, which we can. And you can also even, you know, uh, attach senses as the input rather than a memory data set such that it does real-time learning, which is a very cool idea. Uh, and we can indeed do that. Uh, it's possible. But uh, you will basically trade uh, flexibility for uh, application specific. So, I mean, it is a very common idea, right? You, you, you trade in general performance to application specific performance. And in some cases, it makes perfect sense. But what I think that the first place that these architectures need to come into is a general purpose AI training. And if these processes will actually have a business impact at the front end, at the users and software end, 
people should be able to use the exact same language packages and exact same models or these architectures seamlessly. The transition, basically, you take a rack off, take this rack on, and the only thing that you will realize is that it is just faster. Uh, other than that, there should be no complications. Even if the algorithms are a bit different, as I showed with SGD to SHD, uh, though that the philosophy of that change can be applied to many uh, optimization algorithms. We just applied it to an SGD, given that it's the most common one. But uh, other than that, they are most certainly versatile and they can uh, address many different types of neural networks, uh, as far as we know, at least uh, so far. Yeah, thank you for that. And I'm also like, um, really excited that you mentioned something about not using stochastic gradient descent, but stochastic Hamiltonian descent that can outperform in your specific architecture. So looking forward to um, new updates and uh, like I said, really exciting field. So um, thank you for answering my questions. Mike, over to you, Kat. Yeah, there were questions in the, in the chat. Bobby um, had the question, what does the throughput writing and reading of the weights I, 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 you answered it, but if you could, um, yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can repeat it. So the, actually the throughput is easy to compute for these, uh, uh, architectures. So you need to first define how big is your array, a unit array, let's say N by N, uh, a square one, uh, because why not? Uh, and then, uh, the array does fully parallel multiply accumulate, right? So when you use the array, you use two times N squared, uh, operations you do two times n squared operations because n squared multiplications and n squared additions right so we often use 4000 for the n so the uh, basically we have we are doing 4000 squared times two operations and all of this happens within the time of an integration time which is limited by the noise how much noise you have how much noise you can afford to have and that number is usually around 80 nanoseconds and then if you basically uh, do the math, uh, it becomes uh, 400 terror operations per second for this, uh, for these numbers that I gave to you. If you can lower the noise such that you can cut the integration time less or find a way to lower the line resistances such that you can make a bigger array, these numbers can increase. Uh, but the, uh, even, even with these uh, values that I said, it's just, you know, 400 tops uh, should be achievable for the truth. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Denise, do you have the question? Salam Murad Rajam. That was a really <laughs> interesting, that was a really interesting presentation, really. Um, There's a couple things that went over my head, so I'm just going to ask a very basic question, which is, what do you see as the future of this work? What, what would you like to work on next? Yeah, so the uh... I'm basically now trying to uh, spin off a company to follow on this uh, into the commercialization route because I think the timing is right, most importantly, because the research side of it is advanced enough to take on a development challenge. So the, the next stages would definitely be uh, building more, first of all, trans transitioning this uh, process uh, into a commercial facility uh, instead of, you know, me doing them in a clean room uh, found we probably should get involved uh, such that we can do much higher volume processing and uh, then uh, studying the system details as well as uh, you know uh, 
working the front end uh, such that the as I as I said earlier the um, different language packages that already exist can be used to run on these processes as well. So the future directions I see is definitely scaling these things up. Um, the other than that, from a scientific point of view, there are some actually interesting domains which I don't know if it's going to be me who pursues them, but this uh, material and this um, high field, high speed uh, operation regime actually can be used in uh, adjacent fields such as electrochromism, you know, the smart windows, uh, artificial photosynthesis, and uh, micro batteries, uh, right? And basically, in any field where you need fast ion transport. And uh, there are some very exciting opportunities there for academia to uh, work more on and uh, to see to see you know what 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 this material now enables. PSG is a known material to silicon, but not necessarily a known material to the field of ionics. I would say. But I think they started appreciating what it can do and then what it brings. So I am quite sure we will see PSG more and more in uh, ionic device, uh, other types of ionic devices, as well as the computing ones that I'm working on. And last question, do you see, um, are you employing automation um, in, in the physical processes or do you see room for that? Automation for production? Yes. No, currently not. I mean, uh, the the way these devices are made is basically a grad student who was myself uh, going into a clean room and doing steps one by one. It is not automated by any shot. Uh, I mean, we, some of the tools that we use are semi-automated, but uh, that's about it. Obviously, at the production level, these would be automated in a, in a clean room, such as, I don't know, uh, say TSMC's clean rooms. A vapor would be processed step to step in a fully automated uh, manner, but not now. Uh, hopefully, in the near future. That's exactly why I was asking. So, like, wow, it must be. Uh, you know, I've seen clean room procedures. It's very time consuming. It would be very, uh, <laughs> <laughs> really help you to get some robots to do this stuff for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, fully, fully agree. I mean, the when you when you are talking about making uh, billions of these devices. Uh, it is not feasible to employ more and more grad students to do that, I would say. Uh, hopefully, uh, the founder transfer should go smooth and then uh, they can they can make 8-inch uh, wafer scale uh, devices. Then, you know, the number of devices that comes out of the foundry is way far beyond uh, than what a person can. So, but yeah, we are just simply not there yet, but definitely the direction is that way. Right on. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I have a quick question. I'm, I'm also not in this field, so this is more of a broad kind of a question. Um, just what, what problems that this would be used to solve excite you most in the near term and the far term? Thanks, mm -hmm. I'm done. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the, I, I'm, I'm quite sure the biggest field that these really lend themselves into is the uh, deep learning application. So, Basically, if you can bring a factor of one, uh, one order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude uh, performance benefits, that what that means is uh, in three years, this $1 billion cost to train is going to be uh, divided by 10 or 100, right? And that's a lot of benefits uh, for, from a financial point of view. But equally importantly, if not more, uh, I would actually argue more, but some people probably wouldn't, 
the environmental costs that are related with the um, uh, training AI models, advanced AI models, is extremely high. Uh, and if you can uh, reduce the uh, footprint, a carbon footprint of AI, uh, deep learning operations by again a factor of ten or hundred, that's going to be in incredibly impactful uh, to the entire world, right? So. The, the opportunity we have today uh, with uh, changing these uh, compute elements is hopefully going to achieve both of them. And that is where I see them going the first. I really hope that the uh, adjacent fields can use it to further improve uh, what we can do uh, scientifically and engineering wise, uh, because I, I'm quite sure that it will open up new, new opportunities. But other than that, yeah, I think the primary one, at least I know, uh, what they can do is uh, towards much more, much better, much higher efficiency uh, AI hardware, which we really desperately need. Yeah, thank you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying thanks. That's great. The environmental costs are so very important. Anyway, I'm done. Yeah, I agree. Uh, sorry, Joyce, to go over you. Um, yeah, I agree that the increasing efficiency for computation is really important. And um, is it a good time for you to start also because of the bill um, that was passed to like, yes, to, so, so yeah. do, do you get, are you thinking of, or are you getting funding to start your company through like those initiatives, that would be really great. I'm hoping so. Uh, you know, the act passed uh, very relatively recently, and although I think now the money is allocated, there is still a lot of uh, gatekeepers and uh, bureaucracy that needs to be handled, such that money actually flows into companies and uh, you know uh, to the people who really actually use it. A big chunk of it is naturally going to go to processing uh, front. Uh, so the big companies who can now increase their manufacturing capacity within the United States. But I am uh, confident that some portion of it will actually find its way to emerging technologies within the United States and such that you know technology development can accelerate. And uh, in addition to the CHIPS Act, uh, given that there is a very solid environmental uh, cost angle to this. Uh, there are indeed some government initiatives uh, that I'm hoping to uh, get more involved in. And also, if there is anyone in the uh, in the audience who knows them better than I do, I would appreciate if they can reach out and you know let me know uh, who could be the uh, people of uh, interest that I can I can get in, get in touch with. But yeah, there is definitely some uh, government governmental funding. Uh, there is also, of course, uh, private equity in interest. Uh, you know, uh, given they they mostly are interested in the financial gains. To be fair, more than the environmental. And I don't judge them by any shot. By the way, uh, a, a considerable amount of uh, technology is developed thanks to commercial gains. Uh, so I have nothing against it. But uh, uh, yeah, so the uh, I, I'm basically trying to pursue both of them, whichever makes the most sense for now. Yeah, I would imagine wouldn't Apple be really interested to have this in their phone, especially because I mean, it, you said room temperature. How about if a phone gets warmer than that? Is that an issue? No, it, it is okay. So uh, the uh, they they could indeed be interested. We have some. Uh, 
commercial companies reaching out uh, after the paper was published and they, they, they liked what they were seeing. So there is some commercialization interest within the existing companies as well, which is which is definitely a positive. Uh, mobile, I'm not sure if these lend themselves the best. I think uh, for larger scale uh, places uh, like data centers or Amazon, for example, uh, it would probably make more sense. And currently that space is... Uh, uh, crowded by NVIDIA, uh, and so wherever you see very large racks of GPUs, I think those would be the uh, initial uh, places where these might start showing impact. Uh, but mobile might be maybe in the future, because the reason I'm saying that is uh, the, the in order to get the most out of these systems, I, I think the on edge, edge computing for training area allocation becomes quite significant. That's why most AI chips we see, I'm not going to say all because it's definitely not all, but most AI chips we see on edge do inference rather than training. And uh, from my point of view, at least, uh, analog lends itself to training much better than inference. So that's why I don't see mobile to be the most immediate application, at least uh, maybe in the future, but instead, uh, companies like Amazon, uh, who have large data centers, or Meta, uh, indeed, uh, whoever pro processes massive loads of information uh, at those systems, they would probably be the earlier adopters of this technology. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think of that. I was mostly thinking about decreased energy costs that would prolong the life of batteries. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that's always an issue for people like the watches and stuff like that to keep charging them because ideally for the new features that are coming out and will come out like blood pressure measurements and stuff like that, those are make the most sense if you continuously, even during sleep, monitor uh, that data. If you have to at night take it off, uh, to charge, which I guess most people do, to charge your watch and all these edge devices, the the most crucial data you don't get, mm -hmm. like, and I see Apple going into the health um, mm -hmm. uh, system and, and other. So, so I was just thinking, you know, of VR devices and whatnot, like, uh, if they could cut down energy costs that, that would make... No, that, that... People that, that makes oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'm still getting used to the platform. My, my apologies. Please continue. Oh no, you're you're. I was rambling on. <laughs> so go ahead. No, I was I was gonna say you you are dead on on this. You know you're hundred percent right. Uh, edge devices and efficiency is is a huge part of what they are doing. And uh, as you exactly put right on, uh, if you if you have to basically take it off to charge, you are really. Uh, you know, sacrificing quite a bit of the benefits that you could otherwise get uh, and elongating the lifetime of uh, mobile and, uh, you know, uh, smartwatches and so on. It's probably the biggest consumer electronics challenge, uh, I, I think, uh, much more than, uh, you know, the cameras and displays that are already quite advanced, but batteries uh, that are so easily drained and uh, through cycling so easily uh, degraded. Uh, but the, I think the... Uh, uh, even though it is a uh, very, you know, exciting uh, application field, I think the technology is just not there yet to aim for inference first. 
And the, the, the reason I'm saying that is uh, the device and system requirements you need for inference, which is basically to, you know, you have a trained network and then you are just using it to, uh, for example, analyze the data, right? You have uh, this, 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 this bodily parameters, and then that gives you, oh, okay, you didn't sleep well, for example. Uh, that kind of uh, analysis, uh, uh, the inference applications as such, they need different uh, requirements compared to training. So then you might need to choose uh, which application that you want to aim for. And uh, even though mobile is a huge field on its own and edge, edge devices and edge chips are a very valuable big market to address uh, and big impact to get as well. Uh, I think training is a an easier market to put the existing technology in. Uh, there is a more uh, synergy. There's a higher synergy between the existing state and the state that they need to go, uh, that is required by the training applications. And B, actually think about it, you know, this, this GPT-3, the, the, the future GPT-3, let's say GPT-5, right? Uh, let's say that that comes in 2025. If it is going to consume indeed more energy, a higher power than New York City, we are talking about a massive data center that powers that. So cutting a fraction of even, you know, 1% there, let alone 10 to 100 fold, that makes a huge difference, right? So the, the I'm, again, I wish they could be for all applications. I think that would be the best case. And maybe one day it will. Uh, after addressing training, maybe some advancements will come and then inference will also become a, uh obviously a, a useful deployment field but at least from where i stand and not everyone agrees by the way uh, in this field some people in this field actually think inference is a better idea uh, it's just my opinion that uh, training uh large-scale training examples is where these systems would be first adopted in and probably uh, give the most initial benefits such that to, in order to justify all the development costs needed to get to that point. That's at least uh, where I see it uh, today. Yeah, thank you. And um, another question that is from a very uneducated in this field spectrum is, would your, at least the material that you're using, would, would you be able to make batteries out of it because no, that's a good question. you know you have yeah oh good because you know it doesn't degrade it's not degrading so it sounds kind of ideal but maybe yeah no yeah. it is a, it is a very good question so actually if you go far back in time enough there were some groups although i don't know why not widely used uh, some groups were using it for microfuel cells uh, so not exactly an ion battery that we use today, but for energy storage purposes, I think that that's what key uh, part of the question was. And uh, uh, as a protonic battery and protonic battery electrolyte uh, in microfuel cells, I, I think these can indeed be uh, increasingly used. Uh, I mean, I am not a battery person. I actually find myself in this field of ionics by mistake. Uh, you know, I didn't know. Uh, that I, I didn't know anything about batteries uh, before, uh, yeah, I mean, beyond any general knowledge anyways, before I joined this field. But uh, indeed, exactly as you said, from what we are seeing from these uh, devices, there might be some good opportunity to use as a protonic battery electrolyte 
of, I don't know, even maybe lithium battery electrolyte. I, I really don't know. Uh, given that the degradation is so minimal and the speed of ions that you can shuttle across is so high, uh, unless it's contradicting with some of the other properties that you need in batteries, which I might not be aware of, then yes, I, I guess so. I mean, uh, I, I'm probably not the right person to answer that, but uh, as a, you know, a general engineer, at least, I can see uh, at least there is some room for uh, exploration. Uh, and <laughs> I think that's all what we can hope for in the field of research anyway. So uh, yes, I would say yes, uh, PSG, we might see more in energy storage applications as well uh, in the near future. Why not? That's exciting. We had months ago, and I think Denise and Abyss, you were here, and you might have a way better memory than I do. We had a group um, that uh, here as guest speaker that developed a way to charge batteries uh, with with quantum technology to charge batteries. Um, how many times, like instead of hours, like usually like a Tesla battery, you need like 10 hours to charge. With their system, you need only two to three minutes wow. for a battery size like that. And the cool thing is the bigger the battery, the, the, the higher the factor is of speeding up the charging speed. So if you have a very small battery, the, um, acceleration of charge is still significant but less but the larger the battery the more significant um, increase in speed you will have so i'm thinking of maybe i'll write them <laughs> and share this paper with them and ask them what do you think <laughs> because they they developed this way of charging fast the problem was you know, they, they had a few problems and I forgot sadly the detail. Maybe I can share the presentation with you. And I kind of think if they would know about your hardware and the materials you're using, that this might be uh, interesting for them and useful. So, yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, um, I was recently at a solid state ionics conference, which is not some, not a place that I am you know, <laughs> uh, not, not a place that I used to go before, uh, but uh, they were interested in the results. So I gave a presentation to them. And indeed, uh, in the in the uh, audience, there were quite a lot of people who were working in energy storage applications, some of which in batteries, some of which in uh, fuel cells. And uh, I think they already took some ideas. Uh, and, you know, I hope they can take even more, to be fair, because... Uh, you know, uh, that's how science uh, propagates, right? Uh, I hope they can take it and advance it as far as it can go. And then uh, we are trying to also form some collaborations with uh, some groups who have been working in the field of ionics for a long time. Uh, and again, most of these people are interested in energy storage primarily. So, yeah, I, I, I really hope that they might be more, uh, you know, overlaps uh, with such people such that uh, they can bring their existing knowledge uh, into this and see what we can do with PSG, how, how we can push it uh, even further than uh, where it is currently. And then, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe to the earlier question, 
uh, by choice. Maybe their primary application will be batteries, uh, is what you suggested as well. And I would be very happy to see that happen, right? Uh, I would be uh, thrilled. There are many other applications that, again, uh, we can see possibly going, which is the smart windows is a big technology that have uh, had some challenges uh, throughout development and maybe possibly i mean this is pure speculation by the way uh you know <laughs> this is uh on the speculative end of the educated guess uh, if i have to put it uh in the spectrum maybe they will be they will be finding some something interesting about the properties of this material and then integrate it and who, who knows uh, who knows uh this material existed since by a long time and uh, even though it existed, uh, not many people realized uh, what if it could be used for this. And actually, you know, a, a quick insight on how it became a reality. I knew uh, hydrogen movement uh, was actually a big problem uh, for the early days of CMOS, right? So this, there was hydrogen residue, residual hydrogen uh, inside these oxides, uh, silicon dioxide to be particular. And it was moving and it was causing all sorts of reliability issues and they hated it. They wanted to get rid of it. So actually my starting point was understanding what they did to get rid of it and do the exact opposite, such that it moves inside, uh, inside this material. So this material has existed for a long time. It was a problem for some people. It became a future for my application and hopefully, you know, uh, people can start exploiting it further. And uh, maybe, you know, uh, adding some other uh, dopants into it or extracting some or doing other flavors. Uh, I don't know, but uh, it is exciting to even to speculate what might come after it. Uh, I think that's the joy of research, right? Yes, I agree. And one more, I, I you must be exhausted by now, but one more thought that I had that I think would be a really exciting future we had a guest speaker here from um, uh, Switzerland working on nuclear fusion. And he collaborated with the deep learning team from Google to improve the reaction of fusion. Uh, so basically the AI made different shapes of this. It looks like a donut type of shape in when it's like the ideal reaction like the best one that we can achieve high temperature for a prolonged time and um and the deep learning kind of went through different shapes and and um solving it in different ways that people didn't thought of before but i think with your hardware it might be you know it might be coming up with even you know better solutions that um you know could generate um a way of designing the reaction that one day fusion becomes actually um you know <laughs> the solution for all of humanity's <laughs> energy problems and everything and the thing is also the con uh, the the conductors the semiconductors used for these reactors <clears throat> are also a problem and yeah i think it would be really interesting <laughs> would, would there be a way that you could collaborate already with the hardware you have right now 
like and simulate those reactions that would be so cool <laughs> I, I think yeah i mean in the future direction it's definitely something that would happen uh already not unfortunately not i mean it's it's uh, i think if you were to simulate that it would take a very 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 long time even longer than what they already are doing since you know sim for simulation you need to actually add things whereas when it's happening you subtract things so the uh, but in the future, I think, yes, uh, to your point, I mean, whether it's uh, designing uh, advanced engineering challenges such as uh, fusion reactors or designing drugs, which is uh, where AI is uh, very prevalent, uh, drug discovery, uh, it's, it, it is definitely uh, a very big application field. I mean, actually for drug discovery and, you know, in general pharmacology, uh, quantum systems are also, it's, it's one of their uh, proposed saviors. Uh, in order to come up with uh, better drugs for, you know, uh, for example, in oncology, right? So, yes, I mean, the these that is why we definitely need AI. Uh, so, I, in the beginning, I, I was showing, okay, yes, training these systems are going to take a billion dollars, but the reason it is we are still trying to push it forward, 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 is there is so much to gain uh, through artificial intelligence. It can solve the energy crisis if they can find a, you know, design a better fusion reactor, as your example. It can, if they can find a, a drug to cure cancer through drug discovery, then you know that's also one of the humanity's biggest problems solved, I guess. So, uh, what it what it empowers is extremely interesting, and that's why we need to find a way to keep pushing it. I mean, the other way to do was would be. Ah, okay, you know, this is how much we can push it and let, let's stop, uh, we, that's the amount of power we have, but we, we, we don't want to do that because there is there is really so much to achieve with AI. So absolutely, uh, they might come when, when, the, when these architectures are at full scale, when these architectures are fully powered and whatnot, and then yes, uh, the, they will definitely be used in uh, designing better, uh, better systems for many things. Uh, uh, and the example you gave is is very a very good one. I mean, it it would definitely be a potential application field. It's just it's just not there yet. I guess yeah, some sometime will will need to take place. But hopefully, hopefully with the you know with the right uh, understanding, uh, which was one of the last slides I showed, is you know uh, system as a whole uh, understanding instead of uh, compartmentalized engineering, uh, we can get to the hopefully faster and uh, you know, start making an impact early on, as early as possible. Yeah, thank you for doing this work uh, uh, for all of us, for us human humans. <laughs> that is uh, really important. I'm so glad you use your, your brain to do this uh, challenging, but you know, hopefully very, very rewarding for all of us in the end work and uh we wish you all the funding for realizing <laughs> this <laughs> maybe i don't know maybe we can can all write a letter to <laughs> to the president give him the money or something <laughs> something like that so uh feel free to reach out to us <laughs> and <laughs> and um yeah i thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge uh what you 
uh, working on and yeah we wish you all the luck and all the best and a great weekend too <laughs> oh of course i mean it was a really pleasure thanks thanks a lot for inviting me to inviting me this was a very nice experience i i really enjoyed it hope the rest of the audience did as well and uh, yeah let's let's keep in touch and also uh, to everyone uh, have a great weekend uh, yeah and and please come back anytime if you have like um, updates or some research you want to share with us come please feel always invited and i'm glad you enjoyed it too and uh, that's the best if uh, if you enjoyed it too then then everything was was great so and thank awesome. you everyone for coming and um interacting asking questions uh yeah joyce go ahead <laughs> i was just gonna say thank you very much this is very exciting um i hope you don't mind the background noise i'm taking a walk <laughs> No, not at all. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot to everyone. Great. Oh, go ahead, Douglas. No, I was just going to say thank you. Okay, great. So, yeah, thank you. Come back anytime. And, um, yeah, and everyone, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. We will have more rooms. Um, with guest speakers in the future. I can't promise that it's just as exciting as today, but uh, it's also um, uh, Dr. Serrano, he's um, developing some photonic quantum technologies. So we'll talk about his work next week. And then uh, Nick Harner, he's a um, marine biologist and he will explain how sea sponges sneeze to dispose waste and and how they do that and why and uh, about his marine biology work and um then we will have um a room about um geology how the inner core structure of the earth uh, came about um uh, so it's paleomagnetism uh with dr tarduno and on friday we'll have dr Valtteri Wikström talking about interbrain synchronization while people are uh, online gaming. Uh, the, the brains apparently synchronize, um, although people are far apart from each other, not in the same room. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Murat, again. Uh, this was such an honor and pleasure. And uh, bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.